Hello and welcome to another episode of New Narrative's Political Agenda with me, PJ Thumb. I am wearing a blue and orange batik shirt, sitting with two other people in front of a black table and in front of a map of Southeast Asia, and my pronouns are he, him. And today, joining us, Kokila Anamalai, who is very awesome and will be joining us on the podcast today. Uh, before we go on, as always, if you enjoy this podcast, please do join New Narrative as a member to support the creation of more of these at newnarrative.com slash join, or you can donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. If you'd like to learn more about New Narrative, please visit newnarrative.com slash hello. And now, Subash. Okay, so welcome to the show, Kokila. Very good to have you back. I think this is your second time on the show. And of course, joining us as always, Editor-in-Chief of Wake Up Singapore, Sean Francis Han. How are you, Sean? Hi, yeah. Really excited again to this episode. We're going to be talking about the death penalty. We're going to be talking about community organization. We're going to be talking about a lot of interesting things. And that's because we've got a really interesting guest here who's been one of the long-standing figures in Singapore civil society. But before that... I'm wearing a white striped t-shirt and my pronouns are he, him. So Kokila, thank you so much for joining us and speaking to us. Let's get into it. Who are you? Not to bring in an existential question, but how would you describe yourself? Because you've worn many hats in your career as an activist, but how would you describe I, yourself? You know, I can't you... imagine the activism scene without Koki in it. For as long as I've been an activist, uh, you've been there. Like, you know, you're um, a rock. Constant. Uh, a yeah. Constant, yeah. 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 yeah, but th how would you describe yourself? Because you've been in so many different roles. Okay, <laughs> so, hello, um, I'm Koki, and um, I'm wearing a green kurta, and uh, my pronouns are she, her. Uh, okay, so I, huh, I think I've, I've I, I remember, um, I mean, the, the question you ask brings to mind an anecdote that I've always found quite um endearing, if I might say so myself, just that when I first joined um, AWARE, uh, straight out of college, actually, um, they, they hired me for the role of communications executive. And I was like, hmm, can, I, can, can my name card say activist? You know, because I don't, I don't want it to be a, yeah, I don't, I don't want it to be a job in, in the sense of, mm -hmm. of any other job and I, and I wanted to remember the political nature of my work and um, and think of the the functions we do as a secondary um, thing to the, the issues we care about right? yeah. and the and the um, orientations we have towards social justice work mm -hmm. and I remember that my my boss was really amused and <laughs> just like sure you can you can call it you know you can call yourself whatever you want mm -hmm. and yeah but I think that that's um it's, it's shifted over the years. Uh, I think I would describe myself as a community organizer, mm -hmm. um, as a facilitator, mm -hmm. as a researcher and writer okay. um, in varying mm -hmm. contexts. And uh, because I've, I've come to find that the term activist um, not necessarily always clear or descriptive of uh, the kind of labor we do and the mm -hmm. ways in which we're engaged in social justice work. Mm -hmm. mm. So how did you get into activism? What was the spark or the impetus that pushed you into it? Mm. So when I was uh, in university studying sociology, um, I think it, it, 
helped to uh, clarify and crystallize a lot of the the things I had always believed in, but mm-hmm. didn't have the language for, and mm-hmm. helped me to find like like uh, a way to talk about um, power and structures mm-hmm. and um, systemic issues. Mm-hmm. So I think that that was a really helpful. Um, orientation to have and then I also had my I guess political awakening while I was in university through um, discovering more about Operation Spectrum and Operation Cold Store oh wow and yeah did they expose you to that in no oh okay (laughs) (laughs) no but we did have a a human rights module and um, one of the Assignments was to interview an activist, so I actually uh, reached out to Celan on Facebook, mm. um, who was with the anti-death penalty campaign, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't know him, but I was like, "Hey, I have an assignment. Can I talk to you?" <laughs> and then we had coffee, mm-hmm. and uh, so you know that was a really helpful, I think, initial conversation to understand mm-hmm. what human rights work in Singapore could look like mm-hmm. and what had been done, because you know Celan was really helpful and nurturing. And then I um, I think through my conversations with him and just looking things up on my own, I discovered more about the detentions uh, of, of political, mm-hmm. um, uh, political detentions in our, in our past, right? And, mm-hmm. and also then relatedly about labor unions and, um, you know, how, how so much of, we had such a rich history of, mm-hmm. of activism, right? Yeah. And of um, movement building in Singapore in the past. So I think that was a really important point. And then I also went to India for a year. I took a gap year to work in rural development in Tamil Nadu. And that that was, a, I think, a really also defining experience in that I could experience, I think, for the first time, what was possible in a democratic environment mm-hmm. in terms of people coming together and making their own decisions. Um, and I, I was organizing with Dalit communities. Mm-hmm. And just the the amount of change that was possible to bring about when people had the, the space to mm-hmm. um, assemble, organize, associate, and uh, speak freely, and, and imagine alternatives for themselves and mm-hmm. push for it was um, really remarkable. And, um, you know, it, whether it was using, you know, street theater or... Um, other kinds of really creative forms of resistance and um, movement building. I was, I was, I, I think that was really enriching. So I think those were all, you know, different points of of uh, greater understanding and and um, clarification for me on the things I cared about and mm-hmm. wanted to work for. Mm-hmm. And so when I came back to Singapore, I finished college and then was looking for a job in human rights yeah. and, I was, <laughs> and I was very uh, optimistic and yeah and I, and I was just started going to civil society events and meeting people and yeah and that's how I found out about an opening at AWARE and I guess the rest is history. The rest is history but yeah so I'm quite I'm quite interested in like can you you know how what's the financial situation here mm. can you make ends meet like um is there a sense of instability? Is there a sense in which, um, you know, sometimes your parents ask questions or your family ask questions about, you know, where your career is going, things like mm-hmm. that. So I, I want to sort of know on the personal level, mm. what's it like being a full-time activist? Yeah, so it is definitely uh, very insecure. Mm-hmm. I haven't had a full-time job in about two years now mm-hmm. since I left Beyond. Um 
and yeah, so it's it's been a uphill task, I think, trying mm-hmm. to figure out how to, um, you know, I guess earn a living wage yeah. that can support me uh, in a, in a even in a bare minimum sense and mm-hmm. my family. Uh, so it's it's been an interesting challenge. I think I was initially very um, demoralized by it because I I've, I've also you know had so many experiences of applying to jobs and then having it um, go quite far in terms of like the interview and, and them seeming really interested and, and encouraging and then and then it always gets um, you know stopped at the towards the end because of a security check or something because of my politics right mm-hmm. and um, because the government is not fond of me <laughs> so so there's a lot of jobs whether you know full-time, or part-time, or even freelance work, project-based work that you would imagine because it's a contract level that's not going to be a security check. But you'd be surprised, right? And it's not just like uh, civil service jobs or anything like that, right? Mm-hmm. But even and and not an NGO jobs or even jobs in yeah publishing anywhere in so many spaces, it's mm-hmm. it's been blocked by mm-hmm. the state. So that's yeah. I think it was extremely disheartening for a while, mm-hmm. and and now I've. Um, been trying to be more optimistic. I don't know how else to. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've got a, a few different small gigs. I wouldn't say that I am yet able to earn a living wage. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think freelance work takes time to figure out, yep. too. So, um, and also trying to balance it with making sure that that work is also work that builds towards the kind of social yeah. justice uh, efforts I'm interested in. Right? How's the how's your family in this? So are they supportive? Mm-hmm. Are they sort of, you know, curious about it? How do uh, what's the family situation here like? Well, my family here is just my partner and my mother. Okay. Um my partner is of course extremely supportive and she is uh, also in civil society mm-hmm. and that's how we met. So uh, my mother is I think she's evolved uh, her position over the years. Mm-hmm. I think she used to be a lot more anxious about me getting into trouble and about me earning a living wage. Mm-hmm. But I think she's increasingly um, proud of the work I do, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I don't think... It's not like we've had conversations about it directly. I think just from the way she talks about it and she'll be like, oh, I shared your article with my friends or, you know, today somebody told me that they read something you wrote and and that you were, and I, yeah, and I'm so proud. So it's just kind of been an interesting shift. But she's still very anxious about mostly me getting into trouble. Mm -hmm. But it's, I mean, you know, I think that sounds like a mom thing. Like they're always just going to be anxious about everything. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I want to kind of pick back up on something that you said just now, which was that, you know, you made a very interesting argument about how uh, when it comes to the professionalization of activism, right, the state holds the capital. They, they, They hold the coin purse here, right? So they get to decide which NGOs they want to support. It's very limiting, vis-a-vis the work that you do within um, the, the, the organization of the NGO. How, how then do we conceive of where we should go in terms of activism? Because in my head, for the longest time, I thought, well, wouldn't it be a nice idea if all the NGOs were just properly funded and we could all just be career activists? Because activists are on the ground. They know the situation. They know what's going down, right? Why couldn't we have that? And then, so you're, you're kind of challenging that, that narrative that I've, 
kind of implicitly assumed all this time, uh, which is that the professionalization of activism is a good thing. So mm. can you maybe speak more about that sort mm. of, you know, why couldn't, why couldn't we imagine of, you know, the state kind of being like, yeah, we're just going to give money to activists. You guys know the scene, you do it, right? What's mm-hmm. wrong with that model? I mean, it's not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that model, but that that's not our context, right? The state Mm -hmm. is not, I mean, we don't live in a democratic society where Mm -hmm. the state is going to um, give funding to organizations to critique it Mm -hmm. and to resist it, Mm -hmm. right? Which is what happens in many other contexts too, right? Like like state funding is is available for even very critical actors of Mm -hmm. the state. Um, And also in many other contexts that there are, independent sources of funding available. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, because we don't have that here in that kind of, you know, grant makers or, or corporates are, are definitely um, also often trying to be compliant to state regulations yeah. and, and the state's interests. Yeah. Um, it's very difficult to take a position that is independent of the state yeah. if you are accepting funding from any major body. Yeah. So I think that... Um, Decentralized movement building is a powerful and 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 uh, valuable way of mm. doing this work yeah. that we need, we should be exploring more of, and I, and I'm really encouraged to see more of that recently yeah. here. Yeah. So your work now is uh is is more you know is more decentralized. It's more deprofessionalized. You're mm. working with the transformative justice uh, collective and com- and community classroom, right? But before yes. this. You were with Aware and Beyond Social Services, mm. which are more, you know, leading towards the institutional side. Mm. So, you know, we've talked a lot about sort of the weaknesses or the things that we need to be careful about and wary about when it comes to institutions. But what were some of the opportunities that working with an institution like Aware or Beyond Social Services offered you? Um, definitely a lot of uh, skills, right? Okay. Um, in whether in organizing, or running an event, organizing a campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in doing research and um, facilitation, mm-hmm. right, which, which I think is a really crucial skill that community organizers and activists, mm-hmm. um, pro- like it's, it's valuable for them to have. So yeah, I think I learned a lot of skills from mm-hmm. those spaces. I also learned a lot about what was not comfortable for me. Okay. Do you know what I mean? So I, I, that sounds like a backhanded type of thing, but I really mean it sincerely in yes. that. I think, like, I found myself in, in many places I've worked in pushing at the boundaries of what was seen as acceptable for us to do. And, okay. and, and I think those tensions revealed to me and clarified for me a lot about what, what it is that I really want to commit my time and energy to and my labor to. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Like, it does. Can you be a little bit more specific? Because I'm, I'm, I'm very curious here, but... What what was that? This sounds like we're on the verge of something quite interesting here. What was it that you were not sort of comfortable with? Like, what was that realization, if you can concretize that a bit? So I think that um, because of the highly authoritarian environment we live in, where mm-hmm. and so much of this authoritarian sentiment is deeply internalized right yes. into individuals and organizations. Mm-hmm. So I think the kind of self-censorship that organizations mm. um, very unspokenly exercise made me um, quite concerned, I think. Because I, I think that one of the things that's also troubling to me is that often in NGOs, it's not very reflexive, right? Where you're able to say, actually, 
this is what we believe in and want to say, mm-hmm. and but you would get into trouble for. And so we're going to compromise and say this mm-hmm. or do this and take this action instead of this action. And we're going to stay uncomfortable with that gap and try mm-hmm. to bridge it. Yeah. That to me is still a workable position. Yeah. It's a reflexive position, right? Yeah. Because you, you, you're, you're kind of staying aware of the values that you're committed to, of the reasons that you started doing this work. And then you're kind of mindful of the boundaries so that you know you don't get your work shut down so fast and you make some trade-offs, right? To, yeah. to survive in this environment, which mm. is something I have a lot of sympathy for. But I think staying critical of those compromises is crucial. And I think what is, um, but, but I think it's really uncomfortable for people to, to constantly recognize that they're not doing what they um, really believe in or is yeah. really transformative. So mm-hmm. over time, when we start to, instead of staying uncomfortable with that gap, when mm-hmm. we start to justify these mm-hmm. compromises mm-hmm. and align our values with the compromises. So I think it's like, that's your ideal and then this is what you can do right now without getting into trouble. Yeah. You need to be constantly seeing how do you get there, right? Mm-hmm. What are creative ways to get there? But instead in a lot of spaces, things things shift this you way. You shift the ideal down. Yeah. Okay. And then this becomes mm-hmm. what you're committed to. And then you also become intolerant of and 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 exercise, I think, a lot of the same forms of persecution the state does Mm -hmm. towards people in your community and in your staff, in your organization, who are aspiring to that. Yeah. Right? And then the same kind of gaslighting that the state does, NGOs do, Mm -hmm. where they tell you that, you know, you are are self-serving as an activist for speaking up about things that are, the state's not ready to hear, Mm -hmm. you know, you are... you know, yeah, you're just trying to serve your own interests rather, and, and you're selfish rather than caring for the marginalized communities that you serve. And, and then it, it becomes a really, like, I think, psychologically, um, it, it, I think it took a real toll on me, yeah. having to not just make those compromises, which I think is something I can reason with, yeah. but being um, censured for asking questions yeah. or pushing at the boundaries of why we can't do certain things. And and then that being framed as a as a moral high ground, right? That, mm-hmm. that these compromises are in fact the moral high ground. That yeah. this is the playing the long game. This is being strategic. This is, you know, being patient mm-hmm. and and you're just, you know, and when you ask questions or when you push things too far in, in a direction that might make the state uncomfortable. I think is if the conversation stayed, you know, that is, that is, we wish we could do that, but because the state is so punitive, we can't. That's still fine, but it doesn't, it doesn't stay there, right? Because yeah. people are not comfortable with accepting that mm-hmm. they're always making compromises, then they start to censure you in other ways, in the same way that the state does, by saying that you're not, you're not, um, um, what's the word? Like you know, you're not, you don't actually care about. The communities and the mm. people and you're just opposing for the sake of opposing yeah. or um you know yeah i think i think that's yeah the, i can the real imagine that that's yeah. very traumatic you know I, I i i would imagine that you know you're coming into this place which you think is a safe space which should be a safe space and you kind of see how the values and the ideals begin to slip and you get gaslit and then how do you even respond because you kind of know okay they're just responding in a way that people tend to respond to structural issues that are deeply ingrained and entrenched oh my god okay yeah so that's a side of activism that you know i think that's the 
the the the side that unfortunately um, is less pretty, a little bit more ugly than than a lot of us. Uh, think or know about but nonetheless you know you've sort of moved out of there you started your own thing you're now working on community classroom sg and transformative justice collective so can you tell us a little bit more about those two initiatives sure okay so um with community classroom as we actually started out as a collective that wanted to focus on social justice education mm-hmm. and social justice in education mm. um but it's evolved, I think, over time to be a more of a public uh, education and political education kind of platform where we do teach-ins from time to time um, on on different human rights and social justice issues um, and, and hope to do it in a way that is democratic and mm. invites everyone to engage as peers yeah. because um, it's really difficult here to influence the education system, right? As yep. you know, So I think it's valuable to create platforms outside of it that people can turn to 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 learn about um, sociopolitical issues. And yeah. I think that's one of the focuses. The other emphasis of Community Classroom is in bridging community development work with social justice work. And that's yeah. actually why I um, joined Beyond, because I, I thought that the way that Beyond activated communities and worked with people on the ground, people in vulnerable um, circumstances, and in a way that enabled their decision making and their leadership and their assets mm-hmm. um, was really profound and valuable, uh, and not yet a practice that a lot of activists used. So to me, it was really important to bridge that kind of practice mm-hmm. of working, organizing communities that we are part of and communities that we care about yeah. um, organizing with them right yeah. and bringing people together so that they can their wisdom is tapped on for social change yeah um, and I so I think community classroom is also like I run I run some workshops from time to time on community development from a social justice perspective because I think the community development space has been very depoliticized the mm-hmm. same way that social work has been very depoliticized in Singapore yeah. so I guess this is also an effort on my part to repoliticize it right mm-hmm. and and think about community development work and asset-based community organizing work from a social justice and human rights perspective so mm-hmm. that's that and then uh, Transformative Justice Collective is um, looking at the criminal justice system in Singapore and mm-hmm. reforms um, to that, as as well as um, building transformative justice practices mm-hmm. and skills within the collective yeah. so that we can be a resource for communities and people who are looking for um, alternative ways to address harm from yeah. turning to the criminal justice system, right? Mm-hmm. They're looking for restorative or transformative ways to address harm that's been caused to them or in their community. There are very few resources in Singapore currently to for people to turn to. And I think it's very difficult to ask people to critique or reject a system without offering alternatives. So I think to us, it's, it's as important to build up um, our practices and processes and, and skills yeah. and capacity for these alternatives and experiment with creating the world we want to see as much as we're resisting and pushing back on the things that we think are harmful and need to change about the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I can I just ask, uh, for, for the sake of our audience, um, if you can help us define, you've used a whole bunch of terms, community development, asset-based community development work, community organization. I think that's these are very abstract 
concept. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Very jargon, right? Yeah, well, it's okay, it's okay. So maybe we can just all, uh, explain explain practic- in practical terms what they are. Sure. So um, community organizing work is essentially bringing communities a particular community together. So this could be a geographical community mm-hmm. uh, that is, you know, maybe shares a neighborhood or an, um, an area, or it could be a, a community that is connected by a shared aspiration, a shared concern, a shared um, form of oppression or marginalization, a shared identity. You know, communities I, come together around all sorts of things, right? Mm-hmm. So it's bringing together a community to, to then, and an asset-based approach is where you start with um, what assets does this community have? Um, to address the oppression it's facing Mm -hmm. or to um, work towards the aspirations it has. So it's facilitating a community in sharing their stories and experiences and grievances and hopes with each other because uh, and seeing that as a form of pedagogy, it's a form of, it's it's what Freire calls pedagogy of the oppressed, It's, it's a form of critical consciousness building that happens when, you know, if you and I each have individual experiences of suffering Mm -hmm. we tend to think of it as as just our hardship right but then when we come together in communion with other people and can see that hey actually this is happening to you too Mm -hmm. and me too and you so maybe it's not me that's the problem right maybe Mm -hmm. i haven't especially in the kind of context we are in where so much of our suffering is framed as 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 individual Mm -hmm. failure, right? It's personal failure rather than as a systemic, a structural responsibility. Mm -hmm. It then allows people to to consider um, what structural and systemic issues are responsible for their suffering and then to address that in Mm -hmm. ways that that the community determines for itself. Um, And yeah, I think that's the... And and community Mm. development, that's uh, uh, sort of... Um, the process of uh, improvement that you just described. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, where you then build competencies within right. a community to be able to um, participate in mutual aid, which is mm-hmm. where people are doing things for each other, right? Meeting needs for each other, and at the same time, um, being drawing attention to how these are needs that are they've been, uh, oh, this is deprivation that's been caused because of structural failures mm-hmm. so that uh, we build caring uh, cultures in communities and, and the development is in the in the creating of competencies and capacities that a community needs to be able to um, bring about the transformation it seeks either through its own efforts that don't in, outside of the system or through pushing for um uh, and, and and through make, d- making demands for change politically, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and I think I think what you know it's it's um, how you describe it. It's really important to know that this is this is a deeply political process, yes. right? It's a, the definition of political, in that you're organizing people to create change, positive change for themselves, for their community, and we have this concept that you know uh, that community work should. Be, especially in Singapore, should not be political, should be depoliticized. But any time that you're trying to think about scarce resources and how they should be allocated and how do we make decisions about how we govern ourselves, that's the definition of political. So it's impossible to separate the two. Um, and it's, it's this very artificial divide in Singapore created by the PAP government, which I think has very negatively impacted 
uh, a lot of our um, of, of not just our, our communities and how we live, but how we understand how we solve our problems. And we're never going to solve our problems till we understand that yes. this is all deeply, deeply political and there's no mm. separating them. Mm. Yes, yeah. and, that, and I think linking community organizing and development to political participation mm. is crucial, right? So when you can demonstrate that people are actually coming together and able to take decisions, that's local self-governance, right? Yeah. And then pushing for that to have political representation on a systemic and structural level, I think is the next step. Mm-hmm. So on that note, uh, I, I want to talk about the death penalty in Singapore, since that's like one of the big issues that the Transformative Justice Collective is working on right now. And I think, I guess the first question I want to ask, what is, what, what's sort of the big issue with the death penalty? What, what I mean, what's so harmful and bad and toxic about it? Wow, that's I mean, it. It's a, it's, a, it's a huge thing, you know, it's sort yeah. of this huge issue. And, 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 you know, if you go online and you read up about the death penalty or you see articles, people point out many different things about it, right? They point out things like um, it costs the state more, more money, right? Mm. Uh, they talk about you can't get the life back, right? Second chances. They talk about how it empowers the state to take a life, right? But I think from somebody working from inside the movement, what would you say is, this, is, is something that's really, really toxic, really, really detrimental about the death penalty that maybe some of us don't recognize coming in from the outside? Mm, okay, so I can try to answer that. In yeah. a, I mean, I, I can't. I probably can't go into a very comprehensive mm-hmm. response, but I'll try and do justice in a little, like a briefer answer. But also, I think we need to reframe these questions, mm-hmm. and I'll talk a bit about that. So, firstly, I think that the death penalty is is a form of structural violence that mm-hmm. um, implicates all of society in extreme irreversible violence against fellow people, mm-hmm. right? And um, I think that it's a real um, trauma. I think there's collective trauma whenever we are party to violence. In yeah. Gen- like whether it's judicial caning, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether it's the... If, even prison conditions in Singapore are a form of violence, mm-hmm. um, whether it's the death penalty. And I think we as a society suffer collective trauma when we inflict violence on each other. Yeah. And it... it pits people, uh, in this form of, I mean, this particular conception of justice pits people against each other rather than allowing us to relate to each other as fellow people and humans and to cooperate to address our shared suffering and yeah. shared aspirations, right? Yeah. So it, it creates artificially two classes of people in society, right? Mm-hmm. These, these extreme criminals who deserve the worst, and then the rest of us, yeah. morally good people or yeah. better people. Mm-hmm. And I think it's um, it's extremely artificial yeah. as, a, as a starting point to mm-hmm. how we conceive of what justice is, how we conceive of what harm is, and yeah. how we address harm as yeah. a society, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think there, there are very practical yeah arguments that have been made about costs and things like that. And then there are also philosophical and spiritual arguments mm-hmm. about um, the sanctity of life. But I think one of the one really important factor to consider is also that a d- disproportionate number of people who are incarcerated mm-hmm. and are on death row are 
socioeconomically um, marginalized people, mm. right? Socioeconomically and otherwise marginalized people who've who've experienced extreme suffering and injustice in their lives. Yeah. And so to me, it is fundamentally punishing people, individuals, for our failures as a society mm -hmm. to care for each other better, yeah. uh, to be more equitable, mm -hmm. and to be more humane, and, yeah. and to allow everyone a dignified um, life. Yeah. So it, it's, it's double the violence, right? Yeah. Because you're first causing such immense suffering and deprivation to people, like deprivation of opportunity, of... of of care, of fulfillment, and then you're also then depriving them of liberty through incarceration and then depriving them of life. Mm -hmm. um, and then subjecting them to violence in mm -hmm. the form of caning and things like that. So, I mean, I, I really yeah. like that, that point that you made just now in that it creates this binary, right? There's the normal people, law-abiding citizens, and then just these weird, extreme um, criminals on the other end, which is, you know, insane because we all do things for a reason. And the reasons are likely tied to, you know, class and our position in society and even our ethnicity. So I, I really like that point. There's that false binary that's being created that I really never realized here. Right? Yeah, and when we talk about the death penalty as just an ideological or abstract issue, then we're not talking about actually who it's being applied to, right? Yeah. Because it's like, is the death penalty good or bad? But like, for who and why? And yeah. why are they in this position? Like, we need to talk about all of that before we can talk about this. And I think when we also, of course, it's natural that when we have a certain set of conditions in society, then challenging the status quo becomes like where you need to prove and explain what's wrong with that and why it needs to change. But I actually think that we need to reframe the conversation as, but how, why, what is punishment mm -hmm. for? Why did we come up with this? What is the history of punishment? Mm -hmm. And how have we come to conceptualize crime? Yeah. And how do we decide on what punishments for what types of crimes? And what what are the values and and understandings of how people work as individuals and also how society works that informs those decisions about punishment, right? So I think yeah. it's a really philosophical and first principles conversation that needs to happen simultaneously yeah if i can pick up one thing that that suddenly occurs to me what you said is the massive cognitive dissonance with some of the you know you talked about legitimizing extreme violence right and um so i'm just responding to this without uh, a particular sort of question but it, it's suddenly strange to me that we're okay with hanging people and we're okay with caning people behind closed doors but somehow, say, flogging someone in public, cutting the hand off of a thief, uh, you know, scarring someone for life, uh, tattooing someone because they committed a crime. These are all punishments that have occurred throughout history, uh, some of which still occur today mm -hmm. and are between caning someone in, in, in private and hanging someone, right? Mm. Why, why are we okay with these sort of two they're not even this is an extreme this isn't really an extreme in, in, in the sense but uh, sort of two points of violence against a person and yet all these things in between somehow I would hazard that most people would regard them as, as barbaric mm. Mm. so there, there seems to be a very strange cognitive dissonance that just occurred to me mm. and I don't know why that is it's just an observation right and I think also that I think we will all have to think about the death penalty 
um, you know, while we think about it in terms of policy and structures of violence and all of that, mm-hmm. there's also, I think, deeply personal reasons that we will come to for why we take the stance we do. And for me, one of them is, one of the reasons why the death penalty is, to me, the most unacceptable form of violence is because it is the most calculated, premeditated form of violence mm-hmm. and murder, right? So if we are horrified by by murder or violence um, or any other form of harm that people do because they are in a position that is desperate yeah. or in a moment of passion and anger because of other vulnerabilities or even because of they are driven by power or whatever it is in that moment, to me there is, how, how can we be horrified by that but accept the clinical premeditated form of murder that is capital punishment mm-hmm. right it is it is there is you know, there is no excuse that is a human excuse that yeah. you can say oh you know i was i was beyond myself or i was um yeah like there, there is just no humanity in it right because mm-hmm. it is it is a clinical mechanical act of ending someone's life yeah. and and so it, it is it is for me personally just really boggling that we can um, reject forms of violence that that have a human um, motivation to them, mm-hmm. but yet tolerate um, structural violence of that kind of mechanical, clinical nature. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that to to me, that's really a, a huge, you know, crux of it, right? If we if we say murder is wrong, well, why is it then that some people get to murder in the name of uh, retribution and mm. other people don't exactly and you know are we why why do we I, either murder is wrong or it's not yeah right? yeah. Mm. yeah and if you can't kill your wife because she or your husband or you know your child because they were they, they upset and angered you or did something unjust to you mm-hmm. then how can we kill people for doing something unjust like it's just you know it doesn't um, th- there is no moral coherence to me too. And also I think that, you know, going back to the point about this collective trauma, I think that a society that practices capital punishment Mm -hmm. and judicial caning cannot be a society that also is able to end domestic violence or end child abuse Mm -hmm. or end domestic worker abuse. Because if we are a violent society, then that is the culture we are encouraging on on interpersonal levels too. So it's, it's, it, you know, yeah, it, like can, you can't can I, you can't stop mm-hmm. a kid who's you know hitting another kid by hitting the kid. It doesn't really yeah. teach the kid that violence isn't acceptable. I mm. think, yeah. Can, can I can I just ask you? You use the term collective trauma, right? Mm. Which, I mean, I I I get the sense of that, and I feel that whenever one of these idiotic exercises in state power occurs, but I see a lot of people who don't really care, who are just like, well, you know, shouldn't have done that. You know, like, there's no trauma. It doesn't seem to register on any level. So can you explain the collective trauma and how it how it affects us? What is it? Yeah. Well, I, I think maybe it's just a personal belief, right? Mm. But I think it's not just in, in terms of state violence, but I think that anything any kind of inequality, injustice, and um, violence in our society, we all bear a spiritual cost and an emotional cost for it, whether it's 
conscious or not, and maybe some of us to greater degrees and some of us to lesser degrees. But I think that, you know, every time we have to reckon with the fact that a million migrant workers here live in indentured and otherwise exploitative conditions so that we can have clean streets, so that we can have malls, so that we can, you know, um, be able to go out to work because we know our children and elderly are taken care of at home. Mm-hmm. I, I think that we all suffer a cost yeah. that we might not recognize in material ways, but yeah. I think that it it's a cost to our humanity. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think that if we care about... Um, Yeah, building caring cultures and uh, generative cultures and cultures where we uh, can both take care of other people and be taken care of. I think that all these forms of violence make it much harder for us to be full humans. And and we have to keep living with increasing cognitive dissonance where we have to ignore, avoid, minimize, reframe, justify Mm -hmm. things that are actually in fact on a very deeply human level painful to to reckon with i mean i don't think that even people who can advocate for capital punishment can think of it as in any way as pleasant or as as nourishing or nurturing right like it's at best you know something that we justify intellectually or otherwise but we are tolerating on a visceral level it's Mm -hmm. it's how can we deny the trauma of of that of of, of other people suffering yeah. that we the people that we live alongside mm-hmm. in society? You know that clarifies it for me a lot because I think I, I I guess initially when I came into this I sort of thought about trauma as as this very visceral, horrifying, emotional, emotionally tumultuous effect that it would have on you but then when you sort of brought up that subconscious dimension you brought up sort of the the spiritual or the more human or lived experience about it then yeah it does make a ton of sense you know that there's a an effect or an exercise in being callous uh, an exercise in being this detached uh, creature, you know that that sort of looks on and then can kind of be snarky about the death penalty or can talk about human life in terms of pure pragmatics or economics. So that falls into trauma as well. Like trauma isn't just that 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 horrendous experience. It's the it's that act of repressing or dissociating from from the the fact of the matter. Right. So I love and, that. And even interpersonally, I mean, even in terms of personal trauma, that's exactly how it shows up. Yeah, I, right? yeah. people respond to trauma through cognitive dissonance through blocking the memory through through denying the experience i mean those are all responses very common yeah. responses to trauma yeah yeah uh, okay and so there's 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 kind of a a big big thing that we haven't yet touched on that we can't sort of skip over when we're discussing the death penalty and that's drugs right mm. illicit substances which to me has always struck me as the most bizarre part of the death penalty in Singapore because, all right, you know, let's say we are talking about retribution, right? We're, let's say we are talking about the old argument about an eye for an eye. All right, fine. I could sort of see how that's a kind of coherent thought. But the idea that somebody who traffic drugs in, typically because they are from a low socioeconomic background or there was some kind of financial necessity to do so, that that person should have their life taken away from them. That's the bit that I don't understand. Mm. So can you share with us some context? What is the 
What is the relation between drugs and the death penalty in Singapore? Well, you know, I don't want to be a spokesperson for the government yeah. and their stance on it, but the mm. way that they have, I mean, the narrative within which that sits is that this tough stance on drugs makes Singapore safer yeah. for all of us, mm -hmm. that drugs destroy lives and families and communities and drugs universally are always dangerous mm -hmm. and, you know, there, that there is no distinction between uh, different kinds of drugs and also different practices in terms of drug consumption. It's all painted in the most simplistic way that is not at all evidence-based mm -hmm. um, or, yeah, cognizant of social, structural, political factors that contribute to drug use and to drug trade. Um, and it's also part of their like hyper-neoliberal um, pro-business environment narrative, right? Mm -hmm. That, that uh, yeah, that this is what is part of what makes Singapore clean. Right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's together with the sanitation, it's together with all of that. It's just like we're tough on crime, tough on drugs, and this is how we stay um, attractive to investors mm -hmm. and how we make sure that all of you are safe on the streets and that your children are safe from these looming predators looking to sell your children drugs, right? That's their narrative, but yeah. I hate to have to It's so much that, hypocrisy. <laughs> it, just, it just annoys me because, you know, it's so much hypocrisy. And I don't want to preempt what you're, you're, you're going to say, but I just, I just get really annoyed by that because we permit alcohol, we permit gambling, and you're telling me those things don't destroy lives? You know, you need some consistency here. And alcohol destroys way more lives than drugs, gambling, Uh, I mean, it's a lot more limited in Singapore, so I don't know. But I can, I can, I feel very confident saying I'm sure alcohol has destroyed way more lives than gambling. Why do we not say restricted in some way? You know, mm. why? Why is that? And then again, the hypocrisy, the hypo neoliberal capitalism. We we permit companies which uh, have drug products mm -hmm. to operate in Singapore and have say regional headquarters, right? We permit companies which produce products which destroy lives to operate here uh, because we're okay with living off the profits of drugs if those drugs damage other people's lives, but we don't want the drugs to come in and damage our lives. But we're okay with making money from the drugs if the drugs are elsewhere and the companies are here making money and operating regional headquarters, you know, and we can take a, our cut off in the form of tax. You know, so it's just massive hypocrisy. And mm. it's, a, um, it's also a very ideologically derived position. Exactly. Which it runs counter to the whole narrative, oh, we're pragmatic. Mm. You know, no, if you were pragmatic, then you'd have a much more logical and reasonable policy towards drugs and its management Um, yes. you wouldn't just ban it and murder people who knowingly or unknowingly traffic mm. it. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I, that's exactly it, right? This it's a very, this government is a very, like it makes its policies ideologically and mm -hmm. not based on evidence or mm. <laughs> anything like that. And I think it's also political theater because right? mm -hmm. you pick an issue and then it's, 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 it, That's why the hypocrisy shows up, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's not really even a, a, an ideological position they're committing to consistently or all the way. It's just like it's it's the same way that they carry out um, raids on brothels as political theater, right? To show that we're cleaning up the city, we're mm -hmm. keeping the city clean, and you need us because without us, all these dangers are lurking. So there are certain bogeymen, and and sex work is one, and you know, drugs are another, and and these are all 
tools I think that this government uses to build its political capital and in the sense of dependence that they want citizens to feel on them as as necessary for people to feel safe and mm-hmm. live in this society um, with a certain level of well-being, right? Yep. So I think they, they choose these bogeymen and then lots of people's lives are are deeply affected and sacrificed as a result of this political theater and this infantilizing approach yeah. to people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember one time, like in this introductory philosophy class in college, you know, they sort of brought up this idea, okay, what if we sold 10% of our children to slavery and then 90% of the population could live this extremely happy life? And then everybody said, no, what on earth are you saying? It's horrible. You know? And then the next scenario given is, well, what if we kill? What about what about what if we kill people who brought drugs in or, or harmful mm. substances in? And everybody's like, good, good. That's 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 the way it should be, right? <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so, it you know we can sort of stand back and we can sort of take a, a bird's eye view and laugh at the situation. Ha ha. You know, it's so incoherent. But, you know, I'm I'm just curious. How did this position get so entrenched? Because these are bright, intelligent people, but they've kind of bought into this very profound contradiction. How did this happen? Do you have any thoughts or guesses? I'm, I, we have a historian here and we have a death penalty activist. Uh, yeah. It, it, well, it's amazing a, because how, how did this happen? This is such a yeah. huge contradiction here. A, right? a potted history is that one of the PAP's great successes was actually cleaning up organized okay. crime and mm-hmm. opium which was very destructive to Singapore in the 50s and 60s. Uh, so the PAP, of course, came to power in 59 and were very much dedicated to uh, stopping organized crime. Uh, so to, to understand this, you have to remember Singapore was very much uh, throughout our history been this frontier port, right? And if you think of, you know, one analogy I like to make is Pirates of the Caribbean, and the East India Company and the pirates. And Singapore, we were the pirates, right? We were Tortuga, where um, anything goes, you could get any sorts of services for any sorts of money. Um, And we were this great frontier port of the British Empire where all this money, but all these vices sloshed through, right? Raffles famously tried to ban gambling and prostitution. And then the moment he left, Farquhar brought it back. Why? Because a port needs those things, a free port needs those things to thrive. Um, and as Singapore became more sophisticated and slowly over the years uh, started to have its own resident population who were born here and grew up here and then developed uh, economically and then eventually industrialized, we still remained this very much freewheeling uh, frontier port. Mm-hmm. In the 50s, we were still called Singalore. Because the idea was, if you can't get it in Singapore, you can't get it anywhere, mm. right? And we're famous Boogie Street, right, for the, the nightlife uh, and the kind of vices that were available to people. Um, and that was all a natural part of our growth. And so mm. the, the problem is, as, as people start getting born here and grow up here and their children are growing up here, they want this to end and they want a lot more, you know, cleaner streets, uh, vices hidden away. They want a a better environment to grow up in. Uh, But it also, the kind of crime that we had in the 60s was a massive, massive problem. Shootouts in the streets, right? Mm -hmm. We also called the Chicago of the East. 
so it's not like uh, it was unique to us, of course. You know, organized crime was a problem in major American cities. It was a problem here. Um, and so the PAP took a lot of very tough measures to clean this up, including the... Um, the criminal, uh, what's it called? The, the Temporary Provisions Act, right? Mm-hmm. We have two laws in Singapore that permit detention without trial. The ISA was aimed at communists, okay. although whether any actual communists were actually arrested under it remains a subject of debate. But the Criminal Law Tempor- Temporary Provisions Act was aimed at secret society members. Mm-hmm. And Lee Kuan Yew took a really, really tough position of what we call today zero tolerance and just arrested anyone um, you know, with any sort of secret society, organized crime, drugs, you know, and made minor concessions to uh, things which uh, had to go on, like alcohol, but he banned gambling or he made it uh, a government monopoly, you know, and banned drugs. And, you know, I don't know if it's still true today, but when you go into NS, you have to report if you have any tattoos, right? Mm-hmm. So I had to say, I have a, I have a tattoo, Right yeah. of my uh, university uh, athletic logo, right, which I got in university. <laughs> oh my God, such really? a geek, PJ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, this is new to me. All right. Uh, yeah, but you know <laughs> the reason for that is secret societies. Mm. So that's where it comes from. And then we get into today where the PAP over the years has become entrenched in deeply entrenched into certain ideological positions, and you can only advance within the PAP if you subscribe to those positions. And of course, the current prime minister is the son of Lee Kuan Yew. He's not going to deviate from his father's legacy. In fact, of course, as we've seen through Oxley Road, he's trying to put his father's legacy on a pedestal to protect it, to protect the PAP mm. and you know, to protect their political interests. So that's kind of where we are today in that we can't have an honest conversation because we are too deep, deeply, deeply, our, our political leadership is too deeply tied into a certain legacy mm-hmm. and an ideological position and cannot get away with it because the moment they get away with it, well, then why would you vote for the PAP, mm-hmm. right? Their whole argument is we have, you know, SG50, SG54, you know, we have all these years of uh, governing Singapore successfully and that is Lee Kuan Yew, mm-hmm. right? What, has, what can Lee Sien Lung say? What can Go Chok Tong really say about their premierships apart from the fact that, oh, we maintain the great achievements of Lee Kuan Yew and keep Singapore Mm. where it is today. So this is the quandary they face. I've talked about this in other podcasts, lectures, whatever. And and this is, I think, in a nutshell, why we're so deeply trapped in certain positions, Mm. ideological positions. And then, of course, they can present that as pragmatism, Mm. as, you know, just continuing what is the easiest thing to do. Of course, because they are the ones who've been doing it, right? But it's it's only pragmatic in the sense that it's the status quo, but it's not pragmatic in any sense of actually looking at evidence and deciding what is the, you know, what what reflects reality. Mm. And also, you know, yeah, I think that's, that's a really helpful, like, I think, grounding point to look at and yeah. make sense of a lot of their policies and the way that they approach issues universally, right? Dr. Stephanie Chalk has studied and published a, a paper on how these particular drug laws came into being, which mm-hmm. um, I have forgotten what the, the reasons were, but, but that's a good resource to, to kind of understand how the death penalty was introduced for mm-hmm. drugs. But I just want to also point out that, you know, like friends who study uh, social history of Singapore have pointed out that it's it's, it's incredible that in Singapore in the last, I don't know, 100 years or whatever, not much has changed in terms of social history, right? And I think mm. that's also part of, um, partly because 
this government is so tied to a particular legacy and a way of looking at issues. But uh, like, you know, if, if you take, for example, the drug issue, right? When it, I mean, have you have you guys been on the Singapore River cruise? It's like a tourist Vaguely, thing to do. So you may yeah, not I have. think I remember. Yeah, but when, you, when you're on the boat, right, the voiceover is talking all about how there were, you know, these, this, this area was so filthy with like um, and all these opium dens and brothels mm. and then the PAP cleaned it all up. And so this is such a big part of their political capital and narrative too, right? That they have cleaned this up. So then it's part of keeping in that legacy. But also what is so striking to me about that history is also that, well, the opium dens existed because they were extremely overworked workers mm. who were working in ridiculously taxing conditions and had really poor living conditions and used drugs to cope, yeah. right? And that's very much also still real today where, mm -hmm. you know, the the men I've interviewed who've been to the drug, the drug rehabilitation center, which is absolutely not rehabilitative, um, or who have, you know, used drugs, uh, they, a lot of them say that they started because of very taxing work conditions, right? Because they had to work for 14 hours at a stretch or through the night and do really uh, demanding labor and that to cope their colleagues were using um, meth or whatever it was and then they started using it because that's how that's the only way they could get through the day mm -hmm. so you know I think that that this this approach was always again like to not tr not transform the structural reasons mm -hmm. or, or address why these things were happening because people are do especially when people are doing things that might harm them they're doing yeah. them because they're in a position of desperation or because the alternative is worse. Mm -hmm. That's usually why people do things that yeah. that might be risky to their well-being, right? Mm -hmm. Because the alternative is unthinkable or, yeah. or or in many ways makes them more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So instead of, you know, addressing those things, the government's always taken a I think a very mm -hmm. Uh, inhumane approach. Yeah. And if I can add, you know, what you've reminded me of is the reason why a lot of people were addicted to opium, of course, is the British government was happy to encourage that. Mm. They got a nice tax of it, right? The whole point of the uh, the wars with China was to force China to accept opium mm. because, uh, you know, the so much currency silver was draining out of Britain because Britain was buying China's tea, they needed a product to counterbalance that. So they forcibly addicted China to opium by invading it and forcing open their ports and forcing that in. And Singapore, of course, was the port founded to service that trade, right? It is a fact that for most of our history, our economy has been built on three major products drugs, slaves, and alcohol. Mm. And that was definitely true throughout the 19th century and into the 20th. And uh, today, you know, it's... Uh, and when we say slaves, of course, uh, we include indentured labor with very unequal contracts. So mm. it's, it's kind of similar things still going on today. Yep. You know, we're still built... And, and we're, we're still taking big taxes of vices, of... Um, human exploitation of humans right all these incredibly mm. horrific things and yet the government somehow says it's holding the high moral ground mm. i mean mm. no it's not well i mean i want to pick up on something that you briefly mentioned just now what goes on in drug rehab if it's not rehabilitative so it's exactly like prison 
Okay. Um, it is within the prison compound, right? It's just another... Why call it rehab? <laughs> so the, the only difference is that... Okay, so again, that's detention without trial too, right? Uh-huh. Because the Misuse of Drug Acts... Drugs, Misuse of Drugs Act uh, allows the, the state to detain people for consumption of drugs. Okay. Without There's no trial. So they okay. just go into DRC. And the, the only difference is that there's no criminal record. Okay. That's the main... Thing that's changed yeah. so it's rehab in that you don't get a criminal record but the conditions are identical okay and they have to go through some kind of program like you know just classes or lessons that mm-hmm. that also exist in prison yeah. but you know there's there's a selection of courses that one could go through right anger management whatever so i think in drc it's um probably about drug-related things, but uh, none of the guys I've spoken to have found it in the least bit um, relevant or helpful (laughs) to their recovery or well-being. Yeah. So... It it seems odd that a rehab would be something you get forcibly sent into Mm -hmm. because a rehab is something you check yourself into. Mm. You rehabilitate yourself. Okay, that's 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 a bit strange. So we do have NAMS, (laughs) Uh the National Addiction Management service so that's at IMH yeah and you could uh, check yourself in there wait, wait did you just say it's at the Institute of Mental Health yes yes it's an IMH um, wing that, that's a bit strange also right because it's not a it's not a mental health issue it's usually right on well it's a public health issue right yeah. and it, it, it does have um, so I mean it's it is like, it is it is I mean it is psychiatrists that look at addiction yeah, right, isn't right. it? So it is to that extent. It's not. I mean, of course, then they're not addressing structural systemic factors, but yeah. that's true for all of healthcare. Right? Yeah. Okay. Like people get diabetes for structural reasons too. People get depressed for structural reasons. Hospitals and mental health care facilities are not set up to respond to those, mm-hmm. but they can support with addiction, and that is in fact a progressive approach, right? To to treat it as a healthcare issue. Okay. And so they're. Okay. Um, Yes, because addiction then mm-hmm. is, is, yeah, it, there's, you know, I'm not an expert, but mm-hmm. we're actually, so today is the 5th of December, is it? And on the 13th, in commemoration of Human Rights Day, we're having a panel, a transformative justice collective is having a panel on drug policy, on drug use, like what are the drivers of drug use, mm-hmm. and also how addiction works, yeah. right? So we, we're having doctors and researchers who study drug use, and also someone who has experienced both DRC and NAMS mm-hmm. um, and other forms of support and intervention mm-hmm. share his experience as well. Yeah, so there, I think they will go into more of how addiction really works and how um, both also like why people start to use drugs, but then yeah. once they start to use drugs, what's actually helpful, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the, the progressive practices around the world that have seen a lot of effective... Um, change yeah. is is a harm reduction approach yes. that focuses on giving people a safe space and a safe way to use and also a medication mm-hmm. that um, helps to helps them to wean off the, the, the drug that they're addicted to and yeah. really by treating it as a healthcare issue. issue. Yeah. yeah. You know, one of the big things that I feel like I've learned in this in this discussion here, right, is that we've we've really, you know, through the death penalty and to support the death penalty simultaneously constructed these cultures of retribution. 
and that human life is pragmatic and that this violence is necessary and it's all right and it's okay for us to all condone this kind of violence, right? So we have this culture of retribution of a, of a punitive society, right? Um, what's the alternative here? How do we imagine a non-violent um, and restorative culture? Yeah, so that, that's not going to come from any state, right? Okay. <laughs> so we have to do that work. <laughs> and I think a lot of it is, is deep unlearning, Yeah. right? Um, as much as it is experimenting with and learning other ways of being with each other. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, I mean, I don't want to sound cheesy, right? But I think it starts with, you know, even things like how we treat ourselves, mm -hmm. how we treat the people in our lives or whether they're family or friends or people we work with and, and resisting the deeply violent and capitalist mode of being with each other that I yeah. think our systems and structures and the way we've organized societies in urban capitalist societies mm -hmm. tends to um, indoctrinate or condition us to. So I think it's a lot of unlearning and, and um, yeah, I think, I think being committed to understanding how to care for each other mm -hmm. better yeah. and focusing on um, collective accountability, yeah. right, for harm. Yeah. That when, uh, you know, whether whether it's gender-based violence or other forms of um, harm that exist in our society, yeah. at the same time that we understand that individuals are responsible for the choices they make, mm -hmm. simultaneous awareness of our collective responsibility for creating the conditions within which these forms of harm thrive. Yeah and how we are complicit in that, and then revisiting what we can do yeah. to create a different kind of culture, right? That, that, that allows people to be gentle with each other yeah. and to be um, caring towards each other and, and, to, and to cooperate rather than compete. You know, these are all mm. the kinds of, the, the ethic of a hyper-capitalist society, yeah. right? Of, of getting ahead or, or of um, a zero-sum kind of relationship between mm. different groups of people, of um, being intolerant to difference. And I think like resisting all of that happens at a deeply mm -hmm. personal level as well as seeking out support mm -hmm. in doing that. And, and along the way, recognizing that we will, we will screw up and mm. we will cause harm. And how can we, how would we like to be held accountable? Like when we want to think about how to address harm in society. We also want, I think it's a helpful way to start by thinking about how would we like to be held accountable when we cause harm, yeah. right? And then you're just, even things like starting with how, what is a meaningful way to apologize? What is a meaningful way to put things right? And when we are hurt, what is it that we want from people? Like if you talk to most, you know, many, many people who experience, say, domestic violence yeah. or sexual violence, like it's, so often what people want is is a is acknowledgement of the harm that's been caused for them for their experience to be heard and for some form of reparation right mm -hmm. and to and some form of reassurance that this behavior will not be repeated mm -hmm. uh, towards them or towards other people mm -hmm. now the criminal justice system we have is not set up to facilitate any of this yeah. right because largely it it looks at harm as state versus person yeah right not not you and me like if you hurt me mm -hmm. i'm actually irrelevant to the criminal justice process i'm just possibly a witness mm. right but it mm. is actually you versus the state because it's considered 
an act of harm against the state because you've because what we focus on is that you've broken a law. Yeah. What institutions like what we've seen with you know NUS or other institutions recently focus on is that you've broken a rule. Mm. That's why it's mm. misconduct, right? Mm. So it's about the violation of the code that the country or the yeah. institution comes up, not not harm that a human has experienced, which is the whole point, right? Yeah. <laughs> which should be what is centered is that someone or some people or a community has been hurt, and how do we put that right? And what is it that that community needs to mm. heal? You know, I I get these like emails from from NUS now and then they'll put like the 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 rules that that the person broke you know in in these uh, sexual assault cases, and I just I just find that so weirdly amusing and depressing at the same time because who cares that you broke a rule you you traumatize somebody mm. <laughs> you know I don't care which rule or which law you're flouting mm. it's a human being okay but but yeah you know mm. it's 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 this idea that if we just have better laws better rules that all this all these problems will go away and I don't think we do enough in mm. Singapore well <laughs> that's an understatement really but to think about the values that we want as a society mm. that we're promoting um, and you can clearly see in other places which obsess about uh, rules-based approach to things where people become overly focused on how to manipulate those rules to be technically correct, but to your greatest advantage, right? And mm. I here, I think the, the best example is how America treats its democracy right now, um, where you're technically legal, but highly immoral, but the argument of you know people is like, oh, it's legal. You mm. know, I followed the rules, mm. um, and you can't create a society purely based on rules. It, there has to be values and norms, and in order to have those values and norms, you have to debate. You have to uh, have people feel safe enough to speak out, to mm. give their opinion. You need to think about the short and long term consequences of those values and norms. Right, but unfortunately, we don't get any of that in Singapore. Instead, we just get this relentless, you know, let's have more rules, and you have a government wh whose ideology is we just need good enough rules, and we will solve the problem. Mm. Right, and yeah. what is a good enough rule? Well, it it is one which, and increasingly, they've resorted to rules which give the government so much power mm. in so many different ways to arbitrarily arbitrarily decide things mm. that that then means that they can just fix everything in theory you know we, mm. of course and pofma is one example right mm. if you can literally decide the truth then of course you can fix fix any problem but then of course those the ability of those laws to be abused for all sorts of you know or just mistakes to happen is mm. is immense and it's not going to address the underlying issue mm. that we have a problem with fake news and people are not being trained to understand, you know, there's no uh, media literacy education. There's a, a incentive structure that incentivizes the creation and spread of fake news. You know, none mm. of that's being addressed. It's just give the government more laws, more power. And that this is, again, an overarching structural problem. Yeah, and I, you know, if you if you follow the, the kind of narrative that the government's been putting out in lieu of, you know, I think increasing scrutiny of how mm -hmm. the criminal justice system operates. They keep emphasizing that um, that they decide who to prosecute on the basis of public interest, mm -hmm. right? But, but, and and this, this is a really interesting like, thing to grapple with for me because whose interest is it in to mm -hmm. prosecute 
a domestic worker yeah. in a really vulnerable position for theft from a really wealthy family. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is, of course, in, in, in let's say, Parthi Liani's case, it's clear that she is innocent and did not steal. But I've often wondered, why would why do we as a society place so much more value on the theft that people who are poor and in vulnerable positions um, commit, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. um, against, say, businesses, like, let's say, with shoplifting, or against employers, or whatever. And, and at the same time, we are so tolerant of wage theft, yep. which is a far more harmful form of theft. Mm-hmm. Because if, if I'm a domestic worker and I take $10 from you or a few shirts... You know, it's taken so much more seriously by our criminal justice system when every day we are stealing from domestic workers Mm. just by not paying them enough, just by the conditions that we subject them to living in. And we don't see that as a form of theft. And and when there is actual, you know, even even and that's a bit more of of an abstract notion of theft. Right. But even if you took concrete instances of migrant workers who've been deprived of a year's salary, Mm -hmm. two years salary, who've not had their um, injury claims uh, reimbursed or, mm-hmm. or or provided for by the company. At most, what the government, I mean, what, what the what MOM will facilitate through the labor court justice mm-hmm. approach is um, a few months compensation. Right? Yeah. I mean, if if and when it can be proven, if the worker has evidence that there was wage theft, that they weren't given their salary for these many months, or that they were shortchanged, like and the usually like a case like that can take like three years, mm-hmm. right? And then all that time, the worker doesn't have any wages, and at the end, the settlement. It's a settlement, right? Not a penalty. Yeah. And the settlement is usually 50% of what they were owed to begin with. Mm-hmm. And if that's the approach, then why aren't domestic workers made to give back $5 when yeah. they steal $10? Like I just So whose interest is that in, right? So I mm-hmm. think a lot of the ways that our laws and policies are enforced, it's not just about like this notion that if we have better rules and refine it, it will be fine. Because that's still, you could say, is it's a frustratingly technocratic but maybe well-intentioned or innocent approach but I find it actively malicious and harmful Mm -hmm. because it is clearly in the interest of wealthy people clearly in the interest of protecting the privileges of people who are already in power right and and it is not at all in the public interest and I find it deeply offensive that that would be claimed right mm-hmm. that it is in the public interest it is in the public interest that workers are paid fair wages that's what's in the public interest right mm-hmm. not protecting extremely wealthy people from petty theft yeah. <laughs> like what and and that that you would put so much state resources into that a four-year trial like it's it's mind-blowing yeah. I think it's it's important to emphasize as well this is true for everyone you know it, and not just domestic workers, in that if you steal from your employer's workplace, right, they can report you for theft and call the police. If they don't pay you your fair wages, and this happens to freelancers all the time, right, for months, Mm. oh, you're told, oh, you know, go arbitration, mediation. Small small claims tribunal, okay? Tribunal. (laughs) Why can't you just file a police report for theft too? It is a form of theft. Exactly. Mm. And there's so many people, and do you know, like I recently found out that the, that, you know, there's so many people who go through the small claims tribunal and all these forms of mediation and things like that for years, right? Mm. And then they actually get a court order directing the employer to pay them the unpaid wages, whether this is a full-time, was a full-time job at a company or a freelance work or whatever. And that is not 
enforceable. What? Right? It's just a direction by the court to them to pay. But if they don't, right, it's not directly, it's not, it's not like they're directly culpable of any offense. Then you have to go through a whole other process to then, I think, get a, um, th- then there's another kind of function whereby you can get somebody to seize their property, in, you know, or, or do things like that to get them to, to compensate. We have to then take the things and then sell it to get the money. Like, it's just mind-blowing. Like, I'm, I might not have all the details done, but this is the general, like, way that it works. Right? That, I mean, that, I already thought not... it was bad that a freelancer had to put in unpaid labor to get remuneration. The yeah. unpaid labor being going to the small claims tribunal, filling out a ton of paperwork, and then years. reliving years. the trauma of... This this asshole didn't pay me, and now I need to go and see this yep. person again, and then all of that unpaid. I thought that was bad enough. Now mm-hmm. you're telling me it's just a direction. Yeah. Oh God. Okay. <laughs> you know, and and this reminds you of something else, right? We as a society and our government obsess over people who abuse the welfare system, right? Mm. CPF. But these are the most vulnerable people in society who are desperate and struggling and have all sorts of challenges. Mm -hmm. But the government's happy to expose people who are like, you know, oh, this person gets so much welfare and they say it's not enough. But there are so many people who are tax evaders, Mm. right? Who through all sorts of legal means, they stash their money abroad and they don't pay their fair share of tax. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is way worth way more to the public treasury, way more money to our collectively our our taxes than welfare cheats. So it's it's also a question of who this government trusts, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 really I think striking to me that when it comes to individuals and vulnerable people, then their stance is always is, is always to mistrust and mm. then to to design policies and mm. mechanisms to protect against gaming the system. Yeah. But then when you ask them to, say, implement uh, anti-discrimination laws, mm-hmm. you ask them to, say, introduce workplace sexual harassment-related um, policies and laws, then, then they will say, no, 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 we will provide guidelines mm-hmm. because we want the companies to, to rise to that. We don't want to use enforcement. So then who is it that you trust mm. and to not game the system, right? Mm. Because so many companies continue to practice discrimination. So many landlords continue to practice discrimination and so many workplaces have rampant bullying, harassment and all sorts of things because, and is that gaming the system? Would we ever frame it that way? Because there's no rule, right? Mm. So there is there is this sense of good faith towards wealthy people, again, towards corporations, towards people who are already in positions of power and, and an immense disdain for and mistrust of people who are in vulnerable positions. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just want to sort of put one last question. I mean, it's been an amazing, amazing content-rich uh, in- interview here. But I want to just sort of put to you one last abstract question that everybody on the show gets, and that's, what's your theory of change? And you can answer it however <laughs> you like. You can answer it however you like. Whether you think that means the change that you want to make on a personal level. Mm. How do you think change should happen? How do you think change will happen? How do you want the change to look like? And what are some things that we need to take note of when we're thinking about change? You can answer it however you like. But I just want to know, what are your thoughts on a theory of change? (laughs) 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 Maybe personally, because Mm. you've been through so many uh, groups. 
you've been through not groups but you've been you've been involved with so many causes you've mm-hmm. been with women's rights you've been with education beyond social services now you're working with the death penalty you know What's the change that you want to make on a personal level? It doesn't seem tied to any one particular cause. Mm. Yeah. But what is that change that you want to see, you know? Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, so, okay. Uh, well, I think that... I think that, you know, to me, it's it's maybe about people and, and the com- communities that I care about yeah. but also people at large in, in the people we share this mm-hmm. world with and this society with uh, having the opportunity to be alive mm-hmm. to the realities the socio-political and other realities of our of our shared existence mm-hmm. and and being able to have a say in shaping it yeah. right so I think that in I think that that's probably a focus in my mind because I think in Singapore we're so deprived and denied yeah. of that wave of being alive to what it means to be a citizen like mm-hmm. i think we're so so often the identity that that is allowed for us in the society is one of a consumer mm-hmm. one of a worker one of a um professional or you know like a, a, a beneficiary a client and it's it's they're all they're all identities that are determined by institutions mm-hmm. but i think that our what is you know what I would call our life world is relating to each other as as fellow people as neighbors mm-hmm. as um, um, members in a shared community and in a shared aspiration and I think becoming alive to that and to um, shaping our everyday life like what and what should what should be ours mm-hmm. I think in terms of public resources oh. like being able to claim that yeah. uh, so that we're not we're not held hostage. To the state and its um, its whims about who deserves mm-hmm. what, and being able to provide and create things for each other, and demand of the state what is ours and stake that claim, yeah. is I think the the work that I um, feel committed to. Yeah. And how to do that, <laughs> I think is is for me partly. I mean, I think any any kind of short answer to that will will necessarily be reductive mm-hmm. and um, simplistic but at the at the at the risk of that I guess one one way to put it is I, I think trying to force open those spaces that the state has denied us right yeah. so being able like creating spaces where we can come together as people and to to grapple with the the questions that should be ours mm-hmm. to grapple with and not theirs yeah and to find the answers that are ours and mm-hmm. not where we are deferring to them, mm-hmm. um, and to yeah, and, and to challenge each other and cooperate with each other and take care of each other as we do that. Yeah, mm. and creating those spaces is how I see my my work. What's the biggest thing you think we need to be mindful about when we're pushing for fighting for change? Because you, 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 you kind of really um, showed me a new perspective today with this idea of the decentralized movement building, the idea that the professionalization of activism is not all sunshine and rainbows. There's a dark mm. side to it as well. Mm. Um, the idea that, you know, um, we, we need to think carefully about the dark side and the good side of activism as well. Mm. So I just want to know, what is one thing that you want people to be more mindful about while they're pushing for or fighting for 
change. Can I say two things? Yeah, okay. you can say <laughs> ma- as many things as you like. Yeah. Okay, so I think one thing that I've been trying to learn and practice is that we can't only tell people what we don't want. Mm-hmm. We need to create a vision of what we want. Yeah. Right? So because I think that the energy of, of resistance, of negation, is 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 can be quite... Um, exhausting right and, yep. it, and it's draining mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it doesn't really always um mobilize or bring us together i, th- I think people need we, we all of us need to know what it is that what you know like, and to be able to create a vision together of this is actually what we want right mm-hmm. so when we say we don't want this we don't want this we don't want this and this is bad and this is unjust and this is you know violent we're saying also that this is what we want instead. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes we forget that, even though, of course, of course, that's what informs why we're fighting this, right? It's not, they're not binaries. But I think that it can get lost in the communication mm-hmm. um, because we're so, what we're trying to end or fight seems so urgent that we fixate on that. But I think people, um, in imagination and, and hearts and, and, you know, like just, yeah, are, are inspired by what could we could have instead by, by making mm. that seem possible yeah right uh, and the other thing is is of course um, I'm sure you know this is something that is commonly being talked about in civil society now so I think that's really great but uh, I think it's it's valuable enough to reinforce or, or repeat is that um, trying being mindful of building inclusive movements right mm. that um, are accessible to people uh at the margins of and uh, in, in, and who live at the intersections of multiple marginalities, and I don't think it's it's only. And when I say that, I don't mean that we create movements and then we make them accessible, mm-hmm. but that we ensure that it is people who um, experience multiple marginalities whose leadership we look to in movement building, mm-hmm. whose wisdom and tools and practices and and ways of coming together that we look to and learn from and participate in. So it's not like we create projects and get people to participate in it, right? Mm-hmm. But that we see what is it that people are already doing for themselves. And in and, and there's you know constant innovation at the margins in terms of people coming up with solutions and ways to creatively resist their conditions and to survive and thrive in those conditions and then see how can we support those efforts and put more resources, energy, and attention towards those efforts and learn from mm. those spaces. That's why I think those are two things. All right, Kokila, thank you so much thank for coming you. on the show. <laughs> yeah, it's been really, really, really enlightening. I mean, you've changed my mind on, on a couple of issues. You showed me another side of things. And I mean, I just want to thank you for coming on to talk to us and as well as the constant and consistent work that you've been doing for activism in Singapore. I think that's really, really amazing. No, thank you. This was a whole lot of fun. <laughs> and um, I think, you know, so very often we're, we're, we're working and, and doing things and engaging in action. And it's really valuable to have spaces where we can step back and talk to each other and make sense. And, mm and make meaning of our work, right? So thank you for that. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Koki. I mean, uh, you're not just inspiring, you're mo- one of the most relentlessly joyful people that I know. I don't know how you you continue to exude joy uh, in spite of all that's happened to you, but I'm so grateful to you. I'm so inspired for you, and I'm so thankful I live in a world with you in it. Aww. <laughs> same, same. Okay. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> okay, and, 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 and on that, uh, thank you, Sean, as always. Thanks great questions, being, yeah. great co-hosting, and thank you to you, our audience, for joining us. And as always, if you enjoyed this, please do join New Narrative as a member, newnarrative.com slash join, uh, or you can donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. We really do need your support. So thank you very much, and see you next time. Anywhere you are.